Well, hello there, deal makers, and welcome to the show where it's all about financial freedom with real estate. I'm your host, Garrett Lynch, and as always, let's get ready to own it. You're listening to the Financial Freedom with Real Estate Investing podcast, hosted by Garrett Lynch and Michael Blanc, where we talk all about how you can achieve financial independence through apartment building investing. Whether you're just starting out or you want to scale your syndication business, this is the show for you. This is the show for you. So today I'm actually here with my business partner, Drew Niffin, and he's he's our guest, along with an oil and gas savant helping run a multi-billion dollar oil organization, which is really exciting. We'll have Eric Rice on the show in just a bit. But first... Slackadelic with Apple Podcast said, thanks, Michael and Garrett. I've been binge listening to your show since I stumbled upon it a few weeks ago. I like that you're staying current, especially given the rapid developments and change in sentiment in the marketplace. Keep it up with the awesome guests. Thanks so much, Slackadelic. And if you guys want to get shouted out on our podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and uh, you could be featured on one of our future episodes. I want to highlight a success of one of the students in our organization, Sean Shirk. Sean listened to the podcast, read the yellow book. Recently, he purchased a fourplex in East Hartford, Connecticut, valued at $220,000 with FHA financing, and he's living in one of the units. So cool, Sean. Congratulations. So I want to make mention on this show, guys, we are, if you're listening to this right now, it is likely that we have a live deal related to oil and gas. If you want to check it out, go to nighthawkequity.com slash energy to see how you can get involved, potentially if you're an accredited investor. So Drew. Hey, Garrett. Hey, talk to us a little bit about what's going on in the market. Yeah, man, it is. It never ceases to be interesting. Uh, we're recording this on April 13th, but just yesterday, they came out with inflation numbers and they are finally being tamed. I don't want to say they're at 2%, but What's amazing about this is markets are driven by by the instincts of either fear or greed, or you could say optimism and pessimism, and it's an emotional thing. And I believe we had a huge time of fear for, I would say, the last 12, 15 months as rates have been increasing and the world's been shifting. But I believe that the sentiment, the feeling is starting to shift back. If you look at the data, the Fed isn't sure if they're going to raise rates. If they do, it's, it's the last one at a quarter point. That's what we think right now. And I think that the sentiment is going to begin shifting, not just in interest rates, but in people's appetite for deals. And uh, it's an exciting time. Yeah. I mean, they got stung. They got they got hit with these these banks failing. You know, they they were they thought they could just fight inflation by, by raising interest rates and then there are repercussions. And so it's really good for us that mm-hmm. this is slowed down. Because it puts less pressure on our overall system. You think about it, we went in apartments, We our interest rates were at one point in like the mid to high twos, yep. and it shot up in one year all the way up to eight, 9% interest. So that's that puts a lot of people in a jam, but the fact that there's some pressure release right now, I think I think is helpful. It, it absolutely is, and it's exciting. I mean, I, I think... Uh, we're just feeling the sentiment shift in the business as a whole. And I think that those who have great operations are going to come out of this stronger. And uh, I'm pretty excited about it. Yeah. So Eric Rice is the chief growth officer for King Operating Corporation, 
where he oversees communications to investors and also explains the macroeconomic environment and its impact on energy to a wider audience. The firm that Eric works with, King Operating, knows a thing or two about energy. The company's been around for over 30 years, and the, f- the family of their CEO has been in energy for over four generations. We're excited to welcome Eric to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. So, Eric, you deal with oil and gas, and you guys do pretty well. Mm-hmm. How do you make money in oil and gas? Uh, well, we're a very simple business. Um, you know, at the end of the day, uh, what we do is we we drill subterranean caverns, and we uh, we actually use pressure to bring hydrocarbons out of the ground. That's kind of what we do. The way we make money is selling it into the market. So whether we're selling through a pipeline or trucking out, uh, there are brokers and companies out there buying our products as soon as they're pulled out of the ground, refiners and such. But it's a very simple business. You know, Garrett, the thing that the people complicate oil and gas with is that it's very expensive to set up, you know, to, to drill a well. We, we drill primarily horizontal wells, uh, which are kind of like an L shape. So we drill, you know, mile, mile and a half down and two miles across, and we hit multiple different pockets. And that can cost anywhere between seven and a half and twelve and a half million dollars per well. So the economy uh, that we create with it is very important. We have to understand what we have underneath the ground before we spend that kind of money. So we know right off the bat that we're looking at a at least a 35% ROI, but we're looking for north of 50%. So if we're spending 10 million, we want to be able to make 15 million back. Wow. And when you're drilling for these, how long did it take you guys to like understand the mechanics of how to find the right locations to do this? Uh, well, I'm not a geologist, so I can't get too deep into that. Um, on the geology side, so we have an entire team here. We have multiple um, petroleum engineers that are surveying land. We have land people here. So once we see a deal that comes across, we look for specific science. You know, we're looking for primarily 3D seismic, which is kind of a heat map of below the surface of the earth. So we'll get these heat maps back and, and the maps themselves are great. Uh, it's the interpretation that matters. So once we have a piece of land that we're looking at, um, for instance, like in West Texas, the property we're working on now, uh, this land had been on the market for years and years and it had 3D seismic available. So once we got the deal that came across our desk, uh, all we had to do was hand it over to a couple of geologists or in-house and then a couple external folks to get a second opinion. And they would survey the land and be able to determine very succinctly exactly what hydrocarbons were underneath the surface, where they are and how much was available. Eric, in the in the multifamily space, we have relationships with brokers that are always bringing us deals, and sometimes they're marketed publicly, and sometimes we get them privately because we've transacted in that market before, and they know that we close deals and we're easy to work with. In oil and gas, what's it like for you? How do you come across these deals? If it's been on the market for a number of years, why hasn't someone else found it and looked at that 3D seismic and and, and bought it themselves? What, what was it that got you to pursue that deal when others didn't? Great question. Um, great question. So uh, same thing happens with us. There's there's definitely deals that are on the market. You know, there are multiple websites out there that you can go to to look for oil fields for lease or for purchase. Um, a lot of our deals come to us the same way uh, relationally. You know, King's been around for over 25 years. Plenty of relationships in the space. This particular deal in Borden County, the ranch owner, the Miller family, actually approached us and they said, "Hey, listen, this piece of property is fantastic. We have a well right next to it that's doing amazingly well." Um, and we didn't really know how how good that well was next to us. We do now, um, which is fantastic news. Uh, but when we assess the land, the primary reasons that other oil and gas companies overlook not just this property, but many properties, 
uh, is for a few reasons. Number one, they may not be adjacent to infrastructure. So if you look at the Permian Basin, there's a you can see a small kind of growth that builds out over time of infrastructure, pipelines, roads. You know, we're dealing in areas that, you know, Borden County, Texas, I think has less than a thousand people in the entire county. So it's not robust in infrastructure. So a lot of the big players will overlook it because there's no infrastructure and they don't want to build the infrastructure. Smaller players, excuse me. The larger players overlook the land because it's too small. You know, we're looking at a deal that's, you know, under $500 million for an oil field. And that just simply doesn't fit the budget of some of the big drillers out there. So the independent space, we have a good flexibility of looking for landmass, geothermal, uh, 3D seismic, any type of activity on it that's been done by the landowners primarily. Uh, but we pick up a lot of properties that are overlooked by the big guys because they're too small or overlooked by other independents because they don't have the uh, ability to raise enough capital to build infrastructure to make it workable. Those are really the two primary reasons, not because it's not a good piece of land. It has a lot to do with placement and infrastructure. Wow. So you guys are kind of finding off-market deals. It sounds like it's it's word of mouth. I mean, is there anywhere people look and shop for these or is, it, is that kind of how it goes? Well, they made a, a TV show years ago uh, in the I'm a child of the 80s called Dallas, and it was all about the oil industry. And if you ever watched that show, I had to watch it every week and I had to hold the rabbit ears. And uh, every week when I watched it, you noticed that all of these people knew everything about each other's lives. That is kind of similar. Uh, it's a kind of a spoof, but very similar to the oil and gas industry. So uh, we get a lot of deals that, that other people passed on just because we might like it and they don't for the same reasons you do in real estate. It could be location. It could be cost. It could be upstart capital could be lack of rent anything that you're looking for everyone has their own criteria for their own portfolios and we pass off i don't know 60 or 70 deals every month as well that we look at and pass we'll send them off to another operator because it may fit their criteria or be closer to some of their locations that's awesome if you're interested in passively investing in multifamily syndications then check out our investment firm nighthawk equity at nighthawkequity.com. You can learn more about us, our team, our track record and investment process, and you can schedule a call with us as well. Just click the join button. You can fill out a short form to join our investment club, and then you can schedule a call with us. We'd love to have a conversation with you and share some of our upcoming opportunities. Again, that's nighthawkequity.com. Talk to you soon. You know, you guys do something unique where you, you have uh, these deals that you guys find and then you actually bring are able to bring in investors into these deals. And, you know, a lot of you don't see this a ton of times. How are you guys able to do that? And, and what kind of returns are these investors looking at? Good question. I'll parse it out a little bit. The so, so first and foremost, the thing that really makes us unique is we're very similar to a multifamily structure. So for most of eternity, previous to King, really, oil and gas was separated into retail and institutional plays. So you had institutional models where you'd have a, a large oil and gas company would say, I've got this $5 billion project with this types of reserves, and they just go to a bank, get a loan and start drilling. The independent smaller operators are a little different. They're the ones who we raise capital. We, we truly are the, the heartbeat of this nation, the independent driller. The big drillers right now aren't drilling because there's no reward. Uh, but the independent drillers are the ones that are keeping the, the business afloat. So with us, the, the, we use IRC code 263, uh, Internal Revenue Code. Uh, it was established in 1984 by Ronald Reagan as a way of creating tax advantages for investors to invest in, in drilling and exploration in this nation. And it's something that we use in our fund structure. So it allows investors to take 100% write-off against their contributions into the fund. 
and that it also provides significant tax advantages on monthly income that's produced from the sale of hydrocarbons. So when you look at those two things combined, it, it made a an investment that for many, many years was not advantageous, attractive, because previous to what we do, your, your normal retail, and again, I'll separate them from institutional and retail oil and gas deals. On the retail side of things, you generally were dealing with wildcatters. These were groups that said, hey, we've got 1,400 acres in Oklahoma, and I think there's oil on it, and, and everything tells us there is. So we need five, six million dollars. We're going to drill three wells, and uh, you know that's it. But they're also called wellbore assignments, which means that basically you own the oil and gas above the surface. So once it's pulled out from underneath the ground, you participate in a revenue sharing deal for 30 years. So these were just based on revenue. Now, the secret behind these retail deals for all these years, um, and I love cracking codes, it's kind of what I do, and seeing the, I was a money manager years ago, so I'm in oil and gas. I'll be happy to give my story of why I'm here, because I come from technology. But seeing so many deals as a money manager for all these years, they were one, two, three well-bore assignments. People always lost their money, or they got their money back over a 30-year period. And not to say they were all bad. I mean, of course, they hit oil. But these projects were, were simply revenue shares. So you got a tax break to basically give an oil and gas company money so that they could drive revenue that you shared with. And then at the end of the, at the, end of the process, you know, the oil and gas company would sell that land. If they proved it up and, and got oil, they would sell it. So in 2015, we flipped the script. We actually include all of our investors in on the ownership of these leases. So there, it's truly an asset-backed fund. So we're not trying to drill one, two, or three wells. We're drilling 20, 40, or 60 on multiple pieces of land that, that our investors own with us. Yeah, so just to clarify there, because I, I think I heard you right, Eric, but just to you know make sure we're on the same page, in multifamily, there's two real sources of wealth creation, right? There's the cash flow from the apartment rentals, and then there's depreciation the as we force value creation on the property. And you're saying that the, the same thing exists in oil and gas. There's the cash flow, which is basically literally the hydrocarbons coming out of the ground that you might sell off, but also the ground itself once you prove out that there's a lot of reserves underneath, the ground is worth more. And in the olden days of, of oil and gas, investors simply participated in the first of those, the cash flow, but they didn't participate in the land being worth more. And that's sort of the innovation that your group brought into this space, which is, hey, let's organize this basically a lot like a multifamily deal and give our investors both the cash flow upside, but also the appreciation in the land. Is that right? Yes, no, it's 100% accurate. Yeah, our model is to acquire, develop, and divest. So we think very much like multifamily. We want to acquire a piece of land or piece of property through leasing. Uh, once we have that, and, and, and our projects are much different. So we, we literally take raw land. I mean, you're looking, you're talking about land that a human being probably hasn't set foot on in 50 years. So this is raw land. And the, the issue is not, is there oil? I mean, the, the, that's kind of a myth out there. We know where all the pockets of oil and gas are in the world. This is a known thing in 2023. So we know it's there. But the problem is, will the land yield, right? Subterranean uh, activity can be difficult. You're going through multiple layers of rock and sand and dirt. But once you've proven that you can strike oil and actually bring it out of the ground and turn a profit in one area of the land, it's kind of like building an apartment complex on raw land. The surrounding land around it will go up in value because you need a dry cleaner, you need a gas station, you need a grocery store. So you'll parse it out into different sections and be able to sell it off in the marketplace. So we we want to divest our projects, you know, in two different steps and then in full at the end. But what we're finding right now is, you know, when you when you have access to land that surrounds other existing provable land value, you can sell off portions of your property or portions of your leases, I should say. 
for a profit along the way. So it's very, you explained it better than I do right there. So yes, hundred percent, the revenue is one thing, but once you've proven that a, a piece of raw land can actually be scaled and create an economy of scale or a provable oil field, that becomes an asset worth far more than raw land. So you, you talked earlier, Eric, about wildcatters. And in my mind, that's kind of like a, someone who just goes out there and is trying to strike it rich, like in the old fashioned TV shows, as you said. But that's not, if I understand correctly, it's not who you are, right? And, and your investors, when when they're investing in a fund, there's not one drill that they're investing in. It's it's sort of, again, it's going back to multifamily or real estate investing. It's not like a single family home that you're purchasing. In multifamily, you're buying an apartment building with 200 units, right? So if one unit, if someone leaves or they skip, you still have 199 other units to balance it out. And if I hear you correctly, when someone's investing in, in a fund, there's multiple wells. And even if one well cycles out in 24 months, the life cycle might be longer because you're buying a number of wells and acquiring, producing, and divesting all of them over a larger cycle. Am I am I hearing you right? Yeah, uh, 100% correctly. Yeah, wildcatting kind of defined is, is very low science, very high risk. You know, that's number one and very small projects. So, hey, we're going to we're going to drill a well here and strike your rich. They raise a small amount of money for a small project. Uh, we build portfolios. So in our in our existing properties right now, we have over 200 provable drilling locations. So over the coming three to five years, we're going to develop as many of these locations as possible, whether it's underneath the surface or on the surface. So underneath the surface, proving you know producing oil is called PDP or proven developed producing wells that are revenue generating. But above the surface, it's also important to create PUDs or proven undeveloped wells, meaning that we have the geology to say and the engineering to say, here's the well that we would drill to strike this oil, but we're going to prepare the surface for future drilling for either us to drill or for us to sell off to another uh, large company to be able to come in at a profit and start drilling. So we're 100% the same way. We build portfolios. We're not looking to strike it rich in one, two or three. Uh, again, our drilling schedule is about 20 wells per year, which is which is frequent. That is a, a very uh, hefty workload year over year. So what, what a lot of people maybe think or you hear murmurs through the market is that oil and gas investing is high risk because of pricing. It's kind of like the stock market, right? Talk to us a little bit about how pricing is factored into this overall business plan. That's a great question too. Uh, I think that the reason people would say that oil and gas investing is high risk is because it used to be. It very much was. I mean, wildcatting is high risk. If you're raising 10 million to drill three wells and one of them's a dry hole, you're already down 33% in your investment. There's no possibility. Actually, you're down more, but your possibility of earning is down 33%. When you build portfolios, everyone in oil and gas hits a dry hole, uh, especially if they're doing verticals, which is why we focus mostly on horizontals. It's about a 99.9% hit rate and they're very expensive. But the pricing itself does have a lot to do with it, which is why I'm here, <laughs> why I'm in oil and gas. I'm a bit of a chartist. I used to manage money. I'm a trader. I've done all these things and all the geopolitical information, economical information really is pointing towards a boom market. I mean, oil is very boom and bust. And the boom market we see right now is a three to five year cycle with prices above $80 a barrel. And that's the time you want to get in. Even when you get out, it's actually not super expensive. You're, you're not talking thousands of dollars for, per barrel that you're selling for 80. Uh, there's a profit down into the 50s uh, where we are in the market right now. So if prices dropped, we'd still be profitable, just not as profitable. But we try to generally focus on getting those types of good deals and, and letting volume overcomes pricing. So the more you drill, 
it's kind of like a business, right? I'd rather own 5% of a billion dollar business than 100% of a $100,000 business. Same kind of methodology. So Eric, you talked about that boom cycle that you kind of see in the next three to five years. Obviously, we, we have, you know, energy is very much mixed up in the geopolitical environment. And we have right now China coming off their COVID lockdowns. And we have Russia saber rattling with their energy resources in this Ukrainian war. Talk to us a little bit like, like the, the, the background for the energy markets and why you see it being a boom cycle for energy for the next three to five years. Well, do you guys mind if I blow your mind for a minute with some factual information? Would that be all right? Um, So I've been saying this for years because scientists have proven this years ago. The largest oil reserves in the world exist in the United States between Alaska and Texas. That's a known fact. However, it's not what the media tells us. They tell us that Saudi Arabia and Russia are the largest producers and we're just a swing producer. Well, two and a half years ago, we were energy independent and exporting energy to the rest of the world. And we had a very prosperous economy. So what we're seeing right now geopolitically with Russia and Saudi Arabia, and China is a major player in this beyond just the COVID lockdowns and the demand they're putting on the market. Uh, you have to look at the smaller swing producers, Algeria, uh, all the small OPEC plus countries. Since President Biden went to Saudi Arabia to try to get them to increase oil production after shutting down 25% of domestic oil production, they actually reduced, OPEC plus re- stated they reduced 2 million barrels per day. Now, to let you know how important 2 million barrels per day is, the world uses anywhere between 102 and 104 million barrels of oil per day. The United States alone uses 18.6 million barrels per day. So 2 million barrels from a large producer is a big thing. Russia did the same thing. They dropped 2.5 million per day. And then about two and a half weeks ago, OPEC Plus came out again and said, we're dropping our production another 1.4 million uh, barrels per day. Now, the first two reductions, I believe, The last one, I do not. I think what we're starting to see right now, there's a lot of things that, you know, for most of our life, we thought was one way and we're starting to see it's actually another way. One thing we're starting to see right now is I don't think this recent OPEC plus drop of 1.4 million barrels a day uh, is actually, I think it's kind of like the guy who falls down the stairs and stands up and goes, I meant to do that. I think their reserves are actually running short. And to prove this, even in 2016, CNN posted an article right before the election saying that America has the largest reserves in the world, and then we stopped hearing about it. So I think what we're starting to see is this recognition of the fact that these reserves in the Middle East and Russia, they've been run rampant for literally for decades, if not generations. Uh, I think their production capabilities are running short. Uh, I think they don't think they have the manpower. I don't think they have the reserves. And at this point in time, That's why it's such a great investment in domestic energy. You're going to have great prices. Uh, In June, we will see for the first time in about 50 years that demand will exceed supply in the market. So if you're an investor looking at anything, supply and demand in a commodity, that's your main thing to focus on. And in June, with these reductions, we will see for the first time in 50 years less supply than there is available demand. This is a really challenging time. Yeah, what I hear you saying, Eric, is that the old Texas phrase, um, all hat and no cattle. What I think I, what, what you're saying is Saudi Arabia and Russia are trying to act as though they're the big bravado, kind of the alpha male in the room. But real, in reality, their reserves, their, their ability to produce at high volumes is not as high as we once thought it was. So that's going to be the supply constraint that's going to help push a boom in energy prices in the next couple of years. Is that right? Yeah, it's unavoidable. And that's an assumption. So I, I, I don't have 
you know, reserve reports from Russia or, or right. Saudi. The Saudis, I can tell you, pull, pull oil out of the ground very cheaply. It needs to be refined a lot more than American oil. There is a difference in oil. Uh, there's definitely a difference in purity in oil and gas. We have really clean oil and gas in America. But what I think what we're seeing right now, the first two drops, I think, were politically charged because there's no, it shouldn't be a secret to anyone right now that right now 41 nations have said we don't want to use the dollar anymore. And Saudi Arabia is now selling petroleum and gas products to China in the Chinese yuan for the first time since 1979. So there's definitely political charge behind this. But the true reality of the situation is, uh, you know, Russia, I believe, has the reserves. The Saudis, I, I, I believe, are running short. They've been, they've been really ransacked for generations. It, there's just not... There's not enough manpower out there and enough geology to really prove that they have the reserve. But even if they did, they're not producing enough. It doesn't matter if they have reserves or not. It's what they produce. And in the market right now, we're looking at, you know, between America, OPEC plus and Russia, about seven and a half to eight million barrels a day short as to where we were two years ago. This is a really damaging thing. Imagine being a, an electronics supplier and only having two weeks worth of wire left while you're producing products. That's kind of what we're approaching. We're approaching that time where we're going to have to scrap and claw for every barrel. And if you include in, in the demand cycle, one thing I talk about a lot is the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which was at its all-time high in 2020. And that reserve is designed for times of war and national emergency. So that reserve is now at its 50-year low. They've been selling our SPR oil to China and to other petroleum companies to create gasoline for two years. And now we're talking about World War III where we don't even have, we have enough energy. Right now, our energy reserves would last our military exactly 14 days, estimated, 14 days. Wow. So if we don't have the energy, we can't fight a war. Now let's look at the other side from a supply and demand and pricing side. Let's just assume in August, they declare war, whatever it may be. Say they're going to war with Guam, right? It doesn't matter who we go to war with. We still have to follow protocol. Part of our readiness protocol is that we have to have sufficient reserves in the SPR. So to be sufficient right now, we would need to replace 150 million barrels of oil on the spot, which we don't have. So the demand that that the pressure that war would put on demand, because everyone says we're, you know, we are in a recession. I'm not a believer that we're in, we're in one. We're entering a depression if we continue this process. That's statistical analysis. But if, if we look at supply and demand and the pressures in the marketplace, can you imagine what would happen to pricing if all of a sudden we needed 150 million barrels of oil? Uh, that would push pricing into the $200, $300 a barrel realm, which would be painful in every other industry except ours. So I look at our investment as, as a great way to hedge very easy to see forecoming supply issues around the world. Yeah. And the thing I don't think a lot of people know is that we're not talking about just like filling up your car. Oil is in all kinds of stuff, right? So you, you're hitting, you've got a lot of household items you've got accessory items, you've got furniture, you've got medical things. What are some other things that people don't realize that we use this stuff for? Well, again, allow me to blow your minds a little bit, if you don't mind. You know, First and foremost, if you take Tylenol or you take a pill in, in a tablet format, the tablet, the bonding agent in tablets is petroleum. So you're swallowing oil. Right. <laughs> that's, that's happening. <laughs> it's what bonds you together. Our clothing has petroleum in it. In order to make anything, you need natural gas. About 75% of all manufacturing facilities run on natural gas. So there's that issue. But here's the real one that'll blow your mind. Let's talk about electric vehicles, because that's a big topic and green energy. I hear this stuff all the time. Let's talk about an EV, just the battery of an EV, just the battery. Uh, number one, you need 800 barrels of oil to make the battery. So you can't build an EV without oil. 
Then you need cobalt and lithium. In order to get enough cobalt and lithium to create an EV battery, you've got to move about 250,000 tons of dirt. That's done with a diesel engine machinery. You need the diesel engine. Once you have the cobalt and lithium, you have to use more natural gas in the facility to melt it, to form it, to fit it, and to create the battery. All in, electric vehicles have emitted 13 years worth of carbon into the atmosphere by the time the vehicle is made. It's called offsetting emissions. So while we think that an EV runs smoothly and it's just made out of nowhere, 13 years of carbon emissions are already emitted into the atmosphere before the vehicle hits the road. Then you have an electric vehicle that needs to be charged. How do you charge an electric vehicle? With electricity, right? So electricity comes from coal, oil, and gas. So every time you drive an EV and plug it in somewhere and think you're helping the environment, you're actually hurting it because you're burning coal instead of petroleum. Coal is the dirtiest of the fossil fuels. So it's, wow. in, it's in everything. It's in everything. Keeps, keeps going. This is a really cool thing. You know, there's people, you can actually invest if you're accredited into your guys' operation. What does that look like? So if I, I give you a hundred thousand, what can I expect on the tax side and then the, on maybe on the return side? And then what makes you guys different? Why are you guys better than a lot of companies that are out there? Well, I can give you the expectations of last year. So yeah. every year is different. You know, the way that we get our tax write-off is based on money coming in and how we spend it and how that spending is coded. That gives you a grant of a write-off. Last year in our fund, uh, our previous fund got 90% of year one and we got 87% for fund two. So if, if you were to invest $100,000 hypothetically with last year's returns in this fund, Next year, you would have $87,000 removed from your adjustable gross income right off the bat. So in general, that saves you a ton of money by not having taxable income. Then our income returns, and again, we won't know this for certain because we're on our third well right now. The first one will go online next week. Once we have flow, we can do some projections on income. But on average, our funds, we shoot for a 14 to 21% annual return. So let's just say 15%. So on $100,000, you'd be getting $15,000 a year in cash, which also has a significant tax advantage, very low taxation on the income. Uh, all the while, every time we drill a well and we produce revenue, we're increasing the value of the properties. So as an investor, you're going to get a huge write-off against adjustable gross income. And it doesn't matter what if it's, if it's passive or active income, it's just adjust, adjusted gross income. You get a big write-off there. You get monthly deposits into your, into your checking account right from the company with the tax advantage. And then we are constantly building a new valuation for the land as we develop. So the more wells we drill, we start putting our properties online after a few wells so that people can track and follow. And that way we get more bids at the end when we start doing divestitures. Wow. Second half, is what makes us better than everyone else? Number one, the, right off the bat, the, the thing that makes us better than everyone else is we're inclusive. You know, as an investor in our fund, you own what traditionally oil and gas companies have owned. You own the rights to the lease. You own that valuable asset. It's truly an asset-backed fund. On top of that, we are growing. You know, when I got to this company, it was last May. Great story. We can probably tell it another time. Uh, very interesting uh, first interview. And after that, we've, we've probably added 41 people uh, to our roster in the corporate office, and we've tripled our, our field operations teams. So we're working with hundreds of people in the field growing. We're drilling at a time where other people are sitting on the sideline waiting for pricing to change. 
uh, we've decided to develop, you know, a volume play where we're just going to consistently drill, uh, try to find as best properties we can, drill as best we can and produce as much as we can. But working with us, thing that makes us different, we have we actually have an investor relations division. <laughs> I know that sounds funny, but in oil and gas, most companies don't. We're really focused on creating transparency and alignment with our partners. We're of course going to have things happen. We drill, we drill holes that are you know a few meters wide, a uh, mile and a half deep into the surface of the earth, and two miles across. Things do go wrong, so we constantly get ahead of that. We produced a lot of content uh, over the past year for our clientele, so we do monthly inside the upside updates. You get a settlement statement with all of our well reports. You've got somebody you can talk to 10 hours a day uh, and you've got somebody available 24 hours a day on email to answer and help you with any questions or concerns that you have. Uh, We're really trying to build a scalable model uh, based around our partners, our investors. Uh, Drilling holes, we've been doing that for 25 years. We're pretty good at it. Uh, There's a lot of people who are good at it. Uh, but our team is is young and revamped, and, and Chandler Knox, our, our COO, is just a brilliant young mind in this space who's doing some things I didn't even think were possible. Eric, that is awesome. Well, thank you so much, Eric, for coming on the show and teaching us a little bit about your guys' business. It's super exciting to hear what you guys are doing. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Drew, I really uh, enjoyed the the podcast episode with Eric. I think he had a lot of really good points. You know, I didn't even know that the largest oil reserves were between Alaska and Texas and that we're that energy dependent. Yeah, it blows my mind, right? Because as as he said, uh, you kind of think of it as being these OPEC nations and it's all sitting right here in the States. It's it's absolutely amazing. I, I, I love too how he talked about the structure of these deals. It's amazing to me that operators for so long were only giving their investors the cash flow from the wells themselves, but they're keeping the land value to themselves. And and King comes in here and they're innovative and they apply a structure really similar to what we do at multifamily. And it's it's huge upside for for their investors. It's a true win-win. Yeah, it's really cool because this this is the first time we've ever done this. Like we've we've never brought in another operator and had them kind of partner with them in a JV structure to, you know, offer something to our investors. And when, once we learned more about what this was and that this was available, we we're like, we have to do this because it's so similar to multifamily and there's just amazing tax advantages yep. that people, you, you can only take in oil and gas. And so we're like, we have to offer this to our group and, yep. and see, you know, how, how people could take advantage of it. And our whole goal, you know, we're a capital company, right? We're trying to help people become financially free. And if we have a product that's going to serve our people and our investors, that's what we're doing right here. So this is, that's really the purpose of this, this whole episode and, and what we're launching right now that we're really excited about. You know, I, I really like specifically that this specific operating group has been around for 30 years. So they, if they know, they know more than a lot of people about this, they have the connections and they know how to find the deals. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, I, I invested in this group, you know, um, a while back with my own money, even when I had real estate professional status, right? So I, I would do it even without needing the tax benefits, but the tax benefits that this offers and the ability to offset your active W2 income with the, 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 the paper losses from these investments is truly phenomenal. And I think it's going to help out a ton of investors. Guys, so if you want to learn how to get involved 
again, if you're listening to this right now, it is it is likely that we we still have an open deal active at the moment that you can get involved in only if you're an accredited investor. Reach out to us at nighthawkequity.com slash energy and see how you can get involved with us. Thanks so much, guys, for tuning in. We'll catch you guys next time. Thanks for listening. Take the next step toward financial freedom by checking out our Freedom Vault, where you can find free resources to help you with apartment building investing. Whether you're an active investor just starting out or looking to scale your syndication business or looking to invest passively, head over to themichaelblanc.com slash vault to gain access to our Freedom Vault. 